The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Hello, today is Wednesday, January 4th, 2023. This is the NAS podcast and our first Spineline article discussion of the new year. So welcome, everybody. I'm Jay Volb, Assistant Professor in Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at The Ohio State University. And today we have Dr. Christopher Kaufman, who is the Director of Health Policy and a board member of the North American Spine Society, and Allison Waxler, Senior Director of Health Policy for North American Spine Society as well. Thank you two uh, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right, today we're gonna talk about your article uh, which was in the most recent issue of Spineline regarding CMS's published final rules for 2023. Uh, super helpful article, uh, good bullet point updates on major changes for this year. Uh, can you give us just a brief highlight of kind of the major things that docs should know? Sure, I'm happy to start. Um, one highlight is changes in the Medicare conversion factor, which is the uh, numerical value used to uh, calculate payments with the relative value units for each CPT code. Um, in the article, it did note that the conversion factor was scheduled would be going down about 4.5%. Um, on the good news front, in late December, Congress passed some legislation that decreased the cut to two, about 2%. So the conversion factor hit is slightly less than expected. Um, that is somewhat good news. Obviously, payments are still going down, but it mitigates cuts a little bit. It probably keeps people feeling a little better equipped to deal with inflation and other financial issues in their practices. So um, that's always a major issue that comes up every year in the uh, the final payment rule. Allison, could you go over, because I mean, I got to say, as a physician, I never knew until being in health policy and ask, what is the final, final rule? And what does it mean? I mean, it's like a million page document. I think most doctors have no clue what it is. Yeah, sure. It is part of the large regulatory rulemaking process in Washington, D.C. So the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, commonly referred to as CMS, which oversees Medicare and Medicaid. Um, they're basically in charge of setting payment rates for the Medicare program. So each year in the summer, they uh, publish a proposed rule. Um, like Dr. Kaufman said, it's usually close to or over a thousand pages. It covers payment rates, it covers quality policies, it really covers kind of every policy that could be related to providing care to Medicare beneficiaries on the regulatory side, not on the clinical side. So the rule, again, it sets payment rates for all of the over 8,000 CPT codes, which are the codes that or identify each medical procedure that's performed. So the proposed rule comes out in the summer with proposed changes. There's a two month comment period where NAS always submits comments, most specialty societies and other medical societies submit comments as well. Um, and then CMS reviews those comments, publishes a final rule usually around November 1st, that then goes into effect the following January 1st. And as I said, it kind of governs a wide variety of policies around Medicare. Thanks. What does, when you say the conversion factor reductions, what does that conversion factor mean for just the regular doc? In this case for uh, 2023, it means that they're 
Medicare payments will be cut less. They will still be cut, but so the conversion factor, it's around $30. I don't remember the exact dollar amount off the top of my head, sorry, but um, it's used to then uh, convert relative value units for each CPT code into a dollar payment amount. Does so, so they're essentially cutting reimbursement for physicians across the board. Does this impact whether the physician is in a, like an office-based practice or a facility-based practice? Is there any distinction to that? Or is it just like all physician payments are, are, are slashed? So Jay, I think you really have to know where you are. Each physician is different. And I think it's changed greatly. I think... Um, the people who were in true private practice is shrinking. And those are the ones who are most directly affected, uh, who still participate in Medicare and have that as a conversion factor or whose contracts are based for other payers on the conversion factor. But the way that physicians are paid, reimbursed and, re and reported has changed greatly over the past few years. And that's why we see not as great of outrage over this conversion factor as we have in past years. Yeah, I think so. One thing that I noticed, you know, when we're kind of looking up all this stuff as we're kind of given all this information is uh, the AMA published some figures that looked at reimbursement effects related to inflation. And it looked like for hospitals, long-term care facilities, uh, skilled nursing facilities, outpatient hospitals, these were, their reimbursements were all increased um, at or above inflation. And the graph was pretty striking. It was everyone is getting an increase and physicians are getting this double down uh, decrease. Um, and from, and, and I think that kind of, has impacted, and then I'd be interested to know what you think, but I think that has impacted what you were saying is that there's fewer and fewer private practices and, and more people are becoming employed by these systems where, where the system's reimbursements are better. Um, and as physicians, you tend to be a little sheltered. Uh, the, you know, the, the challenge from a macro standpoint <clears throat> is what do we do in rural America as, as all these systems, we're all centralizing to larger hospitals because as physicians, it's easier to be employed while physician reimbursements are going down. Um, it, it is, it's just something that seems a little bit crazy to me uh, because you know, host, you know, getting a, a care in a, in a clinic that charges a facility fee is a lot more expensive than just going to a physician's office. Um, so you know, seeing those changes are, are pretty striking. I completely agree. I mean, when you look at it, like the way people are paid, they're not only uh, employed, but they're paid on an RVU where they might get a set amount for RVU. And they people think it doesn't affect them, but it does affect them downstream. It doesn't yeah. affect you that year and people don't see it. And then what you're saying is absolutely true where all the centralization may not be beneficial for the average American patient or doctor. Yeah, I mean, we have in our clinic at, at OSU where we have opened several spine clinics kind of in the suburbs, which are a little bit closer to, you know, our rural patients, but we're still not out in kind of rural Ohio as much. And we have many patients who are driving 
one and a half hours, two hours. We have some patients who come from West Virginia because it's a little bit closer even. And so yeah, patients are having to travel really, really far to get their care. Like, cause it's just harder to support, you know, yourself in private practice these days with, with the reimbursements going down. Um, you know, other than the, we, I feel like we could talk about conversion factor and the pay cuts and all that for a really long time, but um, there were some kind of wins that NAS had in, in advocacy as far as supporting work RVU value units for some spine procedures. And so congratulations for that, that work. I think that's super important. And, and you know, docs across the country are, are, are certainly grateful for that, for that work. Um, you know, the, the other thing that was kind of mentioned in your article that, that I had some questions about was telehealth access. And that is something that, you know, we talk about kind of improving access to patients in, in rural parts of the country. Telehealth for at least our practice has been really important. A lot of our patients really, really appreciate that. I'm a physiatrist. I do rely on my physical exam quite a bit. So, you know, it's a, sometimes a little bit struggle for me, but, but access wise, I mean, it's, it's been huge. And what were the updates with uh, CMS on telehealth access? It's actually um, good news, I think, for the most part. Um, CMS had, in the final rule, did extend the COVID telehealth flexibilities. And actually, Congress, again, in the legislation they passed at the end of the year, um, further extended those through December 31st, 2024. Oh, wow. Okay. So that includes the geographic flexibilities with, you know, seeing patients perhaps in a different state where, from where the physician is located, and generally just loosens up a lot of the regulations about telehealth. So that should hopefully continue to ensure access to more telehealth. And you're, Jay, go ahead. I was gonna say, Jay, you really bring up something that to me is just somewhat of ironic in that, you know, you say I'm a physical medicine rehab doctor, I need to examine the patient, but the AMA has devalued physical exam. They took it out of, what it was to do in ENM. They devalued it and in some ways devalued our personal interaction with patients, which I, I, I get the value of telehealth too. I'm in Tennessee. I get people from three hours away rural. And it is certainly for certain things, just a huge benefit to them, save gas time on both of us. But that devaluing the laying your hands on the patient, touching them is incredible to me. Yeah, I think particularly for, you know, in spine, it's musculoskeletal medicine. Um, there's a lot of instances where, you know, my physical exam is going to determine what type of injection I might offer someone. Um, and certainly, you know, whether I need to send someone to see a surgeon or not uh, is going to rely on their manual muscle testing and their reflex exam and things like that. So it, it is important. I think, it, you know, in our practice, we've kind of used telehealth um, in those kind of adjacent areas where maybe we did an injection and we're just checking in, what was your result? What was your amount of improvement um, or medication management where, you know, someone doesn't necessarily need to sit in front of me. We can talk about side effects and things like that. So I think that that is helpful. And it's good to know that that's been extended to, to December, 2024 with, with your experience. Do you think that this is, you know, the tea leaves are here where maybe, you know, telehealth services are, are, going to be more of a permanent thing rather than just intermittently getting extended because of COVID? From my perspective, I think there's definitely a push to 
make some of the flexibilities and telehealth access permanent beyond COVID and beyond uh, what Congress legislated recently. I mean, I think kind of the cat's out of the bag and patients certainly appreciate and like telehealth, the convenience. So I don't know where it will end up, but I think there will definitely be a push from now through December 31st, 2024 to continue to increase access to telehealth. And I, I think we as physicians need to make sure that we are actively involved in the process because to me, there's good and bad parts about telehealth. Um, as you were mentioning, Jay, I mean, certainly if you're in rural and you can skip by your local doctor and go, well, I'd like to see the expert in Nashville or Cincinnati or Pittsburgh, Unfortunately, that makes it even a little harder for the local person. Uh, I think for the people in big centers doing a lot of surgery who are going to do a lot of their post-op care telehealth, which is wonderful telehealth, I think the physicians have to take ownership of that because, as mentioned in the article, the uh, CMS is very big on post-op care in the 90-day global and who is providing those services is it a physician providing it or somebody else? So I, I, I think for us to extend telehealth, we have to take ownership and really drive it. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. What, what are some of the things that NAS is, is working on kind of this coming year to help with reimbursement and coverage for physicians? Like what, what kind of things does NAS do to help with that in general? Well, I mean, that, that's a multiple loaded question. It's a loaded, it's a loaded question because there's so many arms. I think what NAS has done better in health policy is we used to silo ourselves, as you probably know, where one, one committee doesn't know what the other one's doing. So in health policy, we very much tried to make sure if there's a new procedure, coding gets it going, we alert coverage that, hey, this has been approved, we need a coverage policy, and we alert a payment PPRC, which is a reimbursement insurance policies that, hey, you're going to start seeing stuff from policies. So we, we've gotten better at that. And that's what we do really for our members. I think that, and then we've also gotten better with directly interacting with advocacy to say, hey, we're having these problems and here we have shared problems. So I, I think in all those avenues, but I can't tell you any one say, hey, we're going to go fix this one this, 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 this year. Yeah, it, it's always more than just one thing that we have, we have to constantly be kind of working towards and sometimes fighting with, but, uh, you know. Yeah, and unfortunately the payment issues continue each year they usually get just pushed down the road. So in instance, this fix to the conversion factor only fixes it for two years. Um, so we'll be back in the same position of having an even bigger cut because everything kind of snowballs from year to year. You know, because it's, it's correct me if I'm wrong, it's kind of a zero sum game, right? Because the budget neutrality, right. they're going to cover more mental health services or something, then it has to come from somewhere, right? Uh, That's exactly right. So it's, unfortunately, there's a lot of 
infighting among specialties and everyone wants their piece of the pie. So it makes it, it's, it's a challenging environment. Yeah. Sounds like we should get rid of budget neutrality. <laughs> <laughs> we could only do that. Yeah. Things would be so much easier. That's probably way more controversial of a conversation, but um, you know, I, Overall, I just I want to thank you, Allison, Dr. Kaufman, for taking the time to talk with us um, and for putting together the article um, and kind of filling in some gaps with us and giving us an update today. It's extremely helpful. Uh, it's kind of one of these high yield topics that you know we, as docs in the office, we're constantly debating. Did you hear this? Did you you know you know trying to fill in the gaps and ask all these questions is really helpful. So I appreciate your time. Happy to do it and encourage uh, all members to get involved with the, we have, as Dr. Kaufman said, we have a coding committee, a coverage committee, and a payer policy review committee, as well as many committees within advocacy. So there are a lot of opportunities for members to get involved on these issues and help make a difference. Is, would they just apply, go and online to the NAS website and apply? Yeah, applications are open. You can technically apply all year. The official committee application process will start in February. So it will be publicized on the website and Spineline and the NAS Insider. So people should just keep an eye open and watch for that announcement. And, and our most successful things that we've done in health policy over the years have all really come from members making us aware of problems. And remarkably, you know, People may think differently, but if uh, like we had a Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina issue, well, worked by a member, we contacted Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina. They were more than happy to discuss it, talk about it, have a back and forth. So we really encourage members to let us know what problems you're having, what you're seeing. And we may not fix it immediately, but a lot of times we are able to have a really uh, a, a good back and forth with local and or uh, state and federal even. Where where would, like if I had an issue, where would I kind of go to kind of notify NAS health policy? That would be me. So I'm happy to okay. <laughs> give my email address, which is awaxler at spine.org. You can also, um, there'll be, uh, information on the website. If you know you can submit a coding question or other issue, it'll go just either through our coding staff or through um, just the general reception and ask. It'll get directed to the correct person. Okay. Well, again, thank you. That was all super, super helpful. Um, and really, that's our uh, NAS podcast for tonight uh, on the Spineline article by Dr. Christopher Kaufman and Allison Waxler. Uh, thank you for joining us and good night.